And so, Lord, help us to focus and give Joe the freedom to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for the wonderful welcome, and it's just been so wonderful to worship with you this morning. As Tom said, I'm uh, in the midst of planning a church, and uh, it's a much smaller group than this, so it's just a joy to be around uh, a few more folks. Um, uh, I hope Tom will be just as pleased when I get finished as uh, we are at the beginning here. Um, our text is Psalm 72, and it's one of the uh, royal psalms. It's uh, a psalm concerning one of the kings of Israel or the kings that would come forth. Uh, this, this is like a prayer for a king. Some have said that it's a prayer that might be used at a king's inauguration. The psalm emphasizes God as the ultimate source of the king's ability to rule rightly. And so then it sets a very high standard wherein divine justice and righteousness is to be demonstrated through the rule of this earthly and human king. One of the things that struck me about this particular psalm in the context of our time is the selfless, selflessness of the one giving this prayer or writing this psalm. He doesn't pray seeking immediate benefit for himself, as, as I might. He prays that his nation would be ruled in a way that brought blessing to all within its borders, and even those without. Israel was supposed to be so, ruled so well that it would actually reflect the goodness of God to the other nations. They were, in the words of Isaiah, to be as a light for the nations. They were to extend God's glory and salvation to the ends of the earth. And so I'll be reading uh, Psalm 72. Please follow along in your Bibles, or as Tom has reminded me, on your phones. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May ye have dominion from sea to sea and from river to river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May it May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. 
May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. I'm going to move this down just a tad here. This is God's word. And it's given us this day, and may it build us up in unity and love for our neighbors and give us a yearning for this kind of righteous justice. Seeking justice is one of the most important commands in the Bible, and uh, one of the best-known examples is from Micah. He has uh, told you, O man, what to do, and that is to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. That is what he requires. Jesus, bearing many other titles, is also seen as the servant bringing justice. True justice comes with great integrity, integrity that cannot be bought. Justice brings stability and it brings comfort to people. And we reflect God's character when we join in this cause, when we join in this work. In this psalm, the human longing for justice is seen in Christ the Lord. God's justice we see here has two cousins, righteousness and mercy. Like us, the psalmist has hopes for the rulers to come. Here we're moved to think about the far-reaching extent of the gospel message, and we're admonished to consider the righteous character of God in the Lord Jesus and the mercy he offers to all who will come. And it expects, it anticipates a response. Unfortunately, we need to use our imaginations to consider the justice that the psalmist is asking for. In a biblical and Christian perspective, the objective standard of justice is rooted in God's character. Oppression is defined in reference to that standard. We do not have perfect justice that flows from righteousness and is balanced with mercy. Wars displace tens of thousands. Children are constricted to join gangs or or to fight in militias. The poor are held in uh, bondage and systems that strip away their dignity and their worth. People are displaced from their homes, seeking mercy and justice. And I could go on and on. Whether or not the world seeks a redeemer, it does seem to be screaming out for justice. The world cries out for justice. Christians, however, are being swept into secular views of justice. Our longing for justice can easily be misdirected. True justice cannot be separated from God because God, our God, defines what is just. If true justice is caught up in God's character, we ought to understand what it looks like and what it entails. We ought to know it to the depth of our bones. And so my sermon this morning is about the justice of this righteous king which we have all praised and worshiped this morning. I once heard a story of a young man that was raised out in the country. He worked very hard and his parents had high hopes for him. And when he became older, he moved to a city and he indeed did become very successful. And so after a time, he wanted to show his gratitude to his parents. So he decided to purchase a very expensive gift and it was a parrot that he was going to send home. And so he sent it off and a few days later called to see if it had arrived. Excitedly, he said, Dad, did you get that bird? And the father quickly replied, sure did, son, and that bird was delicious. (laughs) In horror, the son exclaimed, you didn't eat that bird. 
Again, the father replied, yes, yes, sure did, and it was delicious. Thank you, son. In exasperation, the son said, Dad, that bird was expensive. It was trained, it could sing, and it could dance. After a brief pause, his dad said, well, he should have said something. (laughs) It's a fun story, but the intent of the gift had been confused. Instead of having lasting value, it was reduced to something that was temporary and mundane. God's justice cannot be confused with the mundane or the temporary or the fleeting sensibilities of this culture. The psalm begins abruptly with the words, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The psalmist is praying for David's posterity, pleading before God. It's an earnest request, and we can easily, I think, miss the depth of it. The request is that the earthly rulers following David would actually demonstrate this kind of righteousness, the righteousness and justice of God. And so this is a very weighty prayer. The son or sons that are prayed for succeed from a royal line. They will indeed rule over people. They will rule over people that God has claimed, God has called as his very own. The request brings to bear all that a godly ruler is supposed to be. Leadership that reflects and demonstrates the very righteousness of God. Justice that brings rejoicing, justice for all people. And that justice, God's justice, has a very particular character. The psalmist's hopes are initially directed to those who would rule Israel, but ultimately they do look to a Messiah this Messiah born in a lowly place on the wrong side of town. It is this Christ that is going to judge in pure righteousness. It is he that is not only concerned, not only concerned, but will give justice to the poor. This is the holy and mighty character of God with us. The list of his character traits goes on, and we see it in this psalm. His godliness brings prosperity and righteousness for all people at all times. He's the defender of the poor. He's the deliverer of children, and he aims to, all, to crush all who would prey on them or keep them down. In the midst of the calamities that mark our time, we, brothers and sisters, we look to Christ. We look to him saying, there's the answer. There's the love of God that will eventually set things right. But I, I fear that sometimes we've created a a picture that is too sweet or too easy, and we've reserved it only for a future time. A Christian martyr of the 20th century, some of you will know him, uh, Bonhoeffer, he commented that we can grow too accustomed to the idea of God's divine love and the coming of Jesus. He said that you can become indifferent to the message, taking, he says, only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people of the earth and lays claim to us. The righteous king brings refreshment to those under his rule. Look uh, with me uh, at verse 6. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. It's a picture of one that brings abundance, abundance that leads to flourishing and peace. Here is the character of your King Jesus. Some readers at this point might object. This is, after all, an artistic writing of the Old Testament. It speaks to its own present context. 
Indeed, it does, and the writer has in mind the desire and the hope that his country, his people, would be governed well, that they would be governed equitably. But this is no obscure interpretation on my part. One commentator notes that the idealistic language eclipses all of Israel's earthly kings and anticipates this coming, this glorious reign of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. All of the traits and attributes that the psalm lays out before us, all of them are more are full, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the very Son of God. In Luke's Gospel, it is Jesus who reads from the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah, saying, and this is probably one of my favorite verses, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here's the kicker. He said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in my hearing, in your hearing. By his word and works and example, Jesus announced this kingdom, a kingdom that brings relief, healing, and real life to people physically as well as spiritually. That kingdom has not come in fullness, but it is a present reality. This is why we can sing at Christmas with real joy, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings. Matthew's account of Jesus' birth includes the visit of the wise men or the magi, and there is mystery surrounding this, this story. These kings bearing gifts were from a different place, a different culture, they followed a different religion. They're following this mysterious star. But Matthew's point is not to determine where the star came from or to somehow detail their journey, but it is to show you the connection between Christ and the flourishing and the hope of all people. He's the one through whom ultimately peace, mercy, and justice will prevail. Friends, it is our common conviction. It has been the history of the church. We proclaim that the kingdom has come. And with that, the church cannot be AWOL. The church cannot be AWOL when it comes to issues of justice. We cannot be away without leave. We are not given leave of the truth that God is holy and righteous and just. We're not given leave of our history as a people who took in abandoned babies on the dump heaps of Rome in the early centuries, or hid Jewish people during the Nazi Holocaust, or insisted during the 60s, as the historic black church did, that all people bear the very image of God. We're not given leave of the certainty that true justice emanates from God. And God's justice is not culture-bound. There is a response to the reality of this righteous king. He's the king that offers real deliverance. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Fear, in this case, is to honor. May people honor him forever. Desert tribes bow down to him. Kings give him tribute. They bring gifts to him. The response to the righteous rule of the king is that ultimately all people will serve him. They want to serve him. They'll do so gladly. The righteousness of the king, the king of justice and mercy, moves all people to worship and to serve him. His enemies, the oppressors of the poor, and I think you could conclude from this passage, 
those who are simply indifferent, they will have another appointment. You can see that in verse 9. They will lick the dust. If you ever wondered where that saying came from, well, there you have it. The prayer and the hope of this psalm looks forward to and is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Jesus told his disciples after walking on the Emmaus Road that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. But we know the joyous response expected was not the response that Jesus received through most of his earthly ministry. And still today, people expect to find justice apart from God, but it will not be found there. One atheist thinker reluctantly laments that secular humanist pronouncements of human value are lacking. They lack the power to say that we are saved because God loves us, his children. Another writer looked for an answer in nature where she expected to be inspired and refreshed by what she thought would be perfection and beauty, but instead she came to see that nature is ruled by violence, the strong against the weak, and so she later wrote, there's not a person in the world that behaves as badly as a praying mantis. Both of these writers were expecting to find justice and dignity apart from God. There's something in us that expects justice to be a reality. The psalmist looks towards an immediate answer and to a future time when righteous justice will indeed become a reality for all people. It's the same reality that Paul looks forward to when he writes to the Philippians that the Lord Jesus emptied himself, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that one day every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. This humbling work accomplished through Christ brings glory to God. It includes his victory over oppression. The results of the righteous rule that he brings is beautiful. So beautiful that we have to use our imaginations just to gain a glimpse of it. In excitement, the psalmist calls out, let this righteousness flourish. Let this peace abound till the moon be no more. Let it last forever. The world waits, the world groans in pain, waiting for this kind of rulership, born of the love of God, righteous rule that delivers the needy and the poor and says in effect to those that have been trampled down on the margins of society, you matter, you are not forgotten by your God. Our text in verse 13 says that he has pity on the weak. I think that a better rendering is that he has concern, he has compassion, and that's played out in the rest of the verse that makes it clear that the righteous ruler takes action. He does something, he saves the lives of the needy. He redeems their life from oppression and violence because their blood is precious in his sight. And this, again, is a picture of the wonderful Savior that we serve. This is what he is like. The Lord Jesus came to set you free from bondage, the bondage of sin, and he comes to break the back of oppression that is born of that same evil. The righteous king that rules with justice appears preoccupied with the plight of those that are in need and the downtrodden. 
And you, you might think that that would draw everyone into some common level of misery. But in fact, we see here the opposite is true. The kind of, this kind of mercy and this kind of justice brings flourishing. The psalmist expects a result of great abundance. We see it here in verse 16. May there be an abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. The people are moved not by scarcity, but by abundance that flows from God. The entire world and its people find blessing in the righteous rule of Emmanuel, God with us. One problem facing the church in our day is that biblical justice has been usurped by another version of it. It's a quest for justice removed from its biblical framework. This confusion ultimately brings a lack of justice. We cannot separate the Bible's commands for justice from the need to be discerning. Our love is to abound with knowledge and discernment. We're to discern the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Justice has an originator, an author, a founder, and it will fail apart from that foundation. The rule of the righteous king will not be limited by geographical, political, or human cultural boundaries. He will have dominion from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. The character and the extent of his rule brings blessings to the king. It's hard for us to imagine this. People want to bless a king like this. They want to shout his praise. They want to worship a king like this from whom justice and mercy flow in abundance. And they say, in effect, long may he live. We'll give our gold to him because he rules in fairness. We want to bless him continually. We want to praise his holy name. May he endure forever because he's a blessing to the nations, a blessing to all peoples. God's story of redemption ends with a picture wherein that justice becomes a reality. We saw some of that in our earlier worship. Justice becomes a reality for all who will trust in Jesus, the righteous king. He's the righteousness of God for all who receive him through faith. In his revelation, John gives you this tantalizing and beautiful picture of Christ as king. He's praised day and night with the words, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth cries out to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. He's the one that guides people to springs of living water. Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, is praised at the end of time because he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christ the Lord will rule with justice and mercy. So what should we make of this? What should be our response to this vision, this call for righteous justice? The picture that we're given here is an idealized one of leadership and rulership that shifts from a present hope, the kings of Israel, to the future hope of the kingdom of God. It is, in fact, judgment against the ancient kings of Israel for their failures to rule in justice that reflected God's holiness. That holiness and righteousness, again, 
has come to us in Christ. Through him, the kingdom of God has begun. We are but a small outpost of that kingdom that will be manifested in all its fullness when Christ comes again. But it doesn't let us off the hook so easily. In the meanwhile, we must see all people as image bearers and seek to see that image restored. That is the simple goal achieved through union with Christ. It's ultimately a work of God, but we are to reflect and demonstrate that hope. And there's some fierce opposition. All of us begin with our own brokenness. Some people are trapped in broken systems that have been created by perhaps well-meaning but broken people. And yes, even demonic forces undergird these systems that hold people in bondage as well as personal sin. But we must, as a church, have great regard for those in need, whatever bondage prevails. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Precious is their blood in his sight, and this is a consistent, consistent theme in God's word. And so we must seek to minister to our community in ways that offer real transformation, and it's transformation that has to begin with us. For that transformation to occur, we must find our plumb line, which is God's word. And we must ask ourselves, how do calls for justice in our day accord with that plumb line? We must love with our hearts and with our heads. True justice must be distinguished from its counterfeits, counterfeits that offer moral superiority of one group over another based on nothing but feelings, counterfeits that deny the sinful state of all humankind. God's word is good for you, and it's good for those around us. God's word is intent on human flourishing, offering dignity to all people. The human longing for justice is seen in Christ the Lord. We have in this psalm a picture of the beauty of God's righteous rule, and we should know about it. We should expect it. But God's justice makes us look at ourselves through the purifying lens of God's word. It makes us consider the plight of other people and see the world as it really is. Despite my pontifications with Tom, I don't have it all figured out. I've seen now on many occasions the pure joy of refugees that have lost loved ones, survived in the forest after fleeing war, waited in camps, and now here in Charlottesville, they feel like they've arrived in the promised land. And I feel very humbled by that, and I don't know what to do with it. I've met with many who've crossed our southern border, arriving with nothing but their dignity and some tattered shreds of hope. And I do not pretend to know what the political solution is. But here's what I do know. God's justice is of a different sort and a better quality than what we often hear of today. In God's word, justice is always, always, always connected to righteousness. People, however broken and whatever background, bear the very image of God. The authenticity of the gospel we preach is directly related to our real concern and care for the poor and marginalized and all who have suffered injustice. The oppressed deserve more than our good intentions or philosophies that vilify one group against another as the purveyors of evil. Social justice has become a commodity that is now used to sell goods and champion any cause so long as it boosts the bottom line. 
John Perkins, a Christian advocate for justice, lamented that Christian brothers and sisters are now trying to fight for justice with man-made solutions. This is a man that knows a great, great deal about justice. He says that they are solutions that promise justice but deliver division and idolatry, and they become false gospels. His remedy is fourfold. He says, we align ourselves with God's purposes. We seek to be one in Christ, knowing that we're adopted by the same Father, saved by the same blood. We preach the gospel, the multicultural good news of Jesus' perfect life, death as our substitute, and his triumph over sin and death. We teach truth, for without truth there can be no justice, and God's word is the standard of truth. However strange Christian belief becomes in our secularizing world, my hope is that the church that confesses Jesus as Lord would gain a reputation in our community for self-sacrificial love, radical self-sacrificial love, love that is willing to cross any boundary. That is a right reflection and a right response to a loving God that humbled himself to satisfy the cost of justice for us. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, suffered on your account, making himself nothing. He died a criminal's death, making peace between God and humankind. He became justice for us. He rose from the dead and has set in place a great salvation and redemption that will bring justice and restoration to the entire world. And he invites you to receive his mercy. He invites you to receive his mercy and then to go out as ambassadors of his kingdom and of his mighty love. As the psalmist writes in verse 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Will you pray with me? O God, holy is your name. Give us hearts of love and mercy that reflect the grace you have shown us. Build us up, O God, as your people seeking to live faithfully in our world and in our community where for many justice and mercy is a distant hope. God of all nations, use us as your instruments to bless those around us. O Father, break our hearts for those who are suffering. Help us to see through the complexities of broken systems that we might bring your peace. You, Lord God, have given us many gifts and talents. Show us how to use them rightly. Help us to proclaim the dignity and worth of all people as your image bearers. Raise us up, O Lord, to proclaim in word and deed the beauty of your love and the certainty of your righteous reign. Amen.